0: Uh, our scripture reading today is, our scripture reader today is Don Hatfield, and our passage is Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. Uh, in honor of God's word, uh, please stand.
1: Listen as I read. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool in the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, there where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Um, so we are in the second week of, of Advent, and uh, you know, we, we uh, have probably mentioned this a few different times, but you know, Advent means coming or arrival. And over these four weeks of, of Advent, uh, that, that's the invitation. The, the invitation is for us to, to wait. Uh, Advent has a sense of anticipation, of longing, uh, of waiting for the good news of Christ's coming. So every year, we, we invite ourselves to do this. We say, in, in one sense, we're trying to actually get back in the shoes of what it would be like to be, uh, to be an Israelite, uh, to be a Jewish person waiting for the Messiah to come. All of those Old Testament promises that said a Messiah was going to show up, and the waiting, and the waiting, and the waiting. And if you're familiar with the timeline of Scripture at the end of the Old Testament, there's a 400-year window of silence. Where, where God does not speak. Uh, his prophets had been uh, warning and, and teaching the nation of Israel. And then there's this 400 years of silence. And so we, we, tr- we try to get back in the shoes of what it would be like to be waiting for the Messiah to come the first time. But then in another sense, we remind ourselves that we actually are waiting. That our, our actual situation is a situation of, of waiting. That where we are right now is you know, that, that uh, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came the first time. But he said he's coming back. And so now here we are 2,000 years later, and we are waiting for him to come again, to come make all things new. And so the more you read the Bible, the more you look at church history, the more you realize Christians should be really good at waiting. It's a big part of walking with God. Some of us aren't very good at waiting. I think one of my most commonly stated phrases is, why is this taking so long? I think everything should happen faster. And uh, when I think about the timeline that God often works on uh, in my arrogance, I often feel like this should be happening faster. And Advent is a season where we're actually working hard, working intentional uh, to to wait. And so one practice that I just read about uh, two weeks ago was uh, during the season of Advent, refusing to use your phone at any point in time when you're waiting. So I know the drivers who are at the stoplight and you get your phone out, waiting for it to turn green. Like, don't do that during the season of Advent. Sitting in a doctor's office, waiting to get called back, getting out your phone. Like, don't do that during Advent. It's a small little practice, but it's a way in which you enter in to the reality of waiting and you feel it a little bit more uh, deeply. And so over this season of Advent, it's a season of, of waiting, a season of anticipation. Uh, you know, Advent starts in the dark. Uh, that's a very, uh, another helpful way of thinking about this is it starts in the dark and then it, it ends in the light. You know, the, the Bible gives us this, this beautiful uh, uh, part of the story where a star shows up over Bethlehem. And it's this sense of the light has come. And so Advent starts in the dark and it moves towards light. But for now, we, we wait. Uh, the party starts on December 25th and we party for 12 days. Uh, but for now, we wait. So this year, we are considering what you would consider the historic themes of of Advent. Uh, last week, Lou uh, led us through the subject of of love. Uh, this week, we're going to look at joy. Next week, peace, and the week after that, hope. And then the Sunday after Christmas, we're going to consider the subject of, of faith. And so, uh, as as we as we move into this subject of of joy, I just I want to say something. Uh, if, if I was uh, looking forward or looking down the road, I, I do anticipate us as a church uh, taking some time to talk a little bit more intentionally about the practical side of joy. Uh, some of us uh, in, in our congregation here have gotten exposed to a podcast and a, and a book that have uh, really, I think, stirred a lot of thinking about the role of joy in, in a church family, in a, in a church community, in, in, in the life of anybody. And, uh, and so we do anticipate talking about that down the road. But today, uh, the goal is a little bit more fundamental. The goal is a little bit more in the root idea of maybe you would say the source uh, of joy. And so last week, uh, Lou uh, preached from the, uh, from the book of Isaiah. And this week, we are in Isaiah again. I want to take just a minute and, and give us the, the context or the, maybe the big picture of the book of Isaiah. So, so, the message of Isaiah—it's—it's—it's it's, it's really large, sixty-six chapters, uh, and it spans a, b- a bunch of years. And so we actually get to see Isaiah prophesying to the people of Judah in a few different phases. And it depends upon the Bible scholar, but you know, some break it up into two parts, some break it up into three parts, and then some break it up into quite a few more. Uh, but I want to think of it from from kind of in three in three categories. In, in Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, you see God's rebellious people being warned. Um, Isaiah, th- th- this was written uh, almost 100 years before Jeremiah showed up. And so I, uh, Isaiah is, is, is ministering to the nation of Israel when things aren't a train wreck yet. There, there's, there's some bad things happening. There's some, some concerns about the trajectory the, 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 you know, in light of their current course, where they're going to go. But Israel is not a train wreck yet. And so these, these first 39 chapters, they are full of counsel and guidance to God's people in light of their current course. Uh, second would be Isaiah 40 through 55, and that's God's defeated people being comforted. And so part of what goes what happens, this is full of prophecy, and it's saying what's gonna come is you're gonna end up in exile. There's gonna be consequences for your behavior, Uh, there's gonna be there's gonna be judgment upon you as a nation. And in those verses, there's there's a sense of of comfort. There's a lot about the character and the nature of God in, in Isaiah 40 through 55. And then the third chunk would be Isaiah 56 through 66. And that's God's true people being prepared for his promised salvation. And those those chapters are full of prophecy for the future rescue of God. And so if you were just saying, how do you get your arms around this big of a book? Maybe you could see it in these three movements where God's rebellious people are being called back. They're being warned. Don't don't keep going down that path. And then it moves into a section of uh, if you do move down that path, you're you're going to end up in exile. You're going to be a defeated people. Uh, But here's a word of comfort. And then uh, God does not quit on his people, and uh, he prepares them for his, his promised salvation. So the author of these 66 uh, uh, chapters, his name is Isaiah, and he was a prophet to the, to the nation of, of, of Israel. And his name means Jehovah is salvation. That's what the name Isaiah means. And it's quite a perfect name for the message that he was given to share as the prophet of the Lord. See, Israel's situation, as I just said, is not terrible at this point. Isaiah, in, in general, is saying your God is calling you back. He's the only place of safety. Come back, repent, turn, don't delay. Can you see where this is headed? Do you see the trajectory of you as, this, as God's people? Do you see how this is not going to work out? That's a problem. Turn from that direction. That's the message Isaiah is trying to preach. Have you noticed how hard it is to get people's attention when life is okay? When life is okay? Like, if it's just not a dumpster fire. It, 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 it is really hard to get people's attention. And, and maybe you know what I'm talking about. But it is just so easy uh, to, to be on cruise control. You know, I, I mean, maybe you've seen this in your life. How bad do things have to get before you take action? How bad do your finances have to get before you get serious about that? How, how bad do your relationships have to get before you get serious about that? How, do, how bad does your health have to get before you get serious about that? How bad does your spiritual health have to get before you get serious about that? You know, if you were to talk to a doctor or a counselor or a lawyer or a pastor, you know, it, it is a pretty common experience for our hearts to ache in situations as we sit with people who are suffering. And often there's a sense of saying, oh, I just, I wish you would have said something sooner. I, I, I wish you would have been willing to get help sooner. I wish you would have taken that step sooner. And it doesn't mean that all hope is lost. It just means it's really hard for people to get serious about things when they're not that bad. Even if the trajectory's bad it is easy to deceive ourselves and convince ourselves that it's not that big of a problem. And Isaiah is preaching as a prophet of the Lord to this nation, the nation that were the people that God called out for himself. And he is, he is calling for them to listen. He is calling, them, uh, calling on them to realize the direction they are headed. But they don't seem to want to listen. Comparatively, where Jerusalem ends up, that Jerusalem's doing okay here. A threat is rising in the east, the Assyrians, but it's still possible. It is so easy in this moment for the leaders of Israel to stick their heads in the sand and ignore it and to say he's, you know, he's just doom and gloom. Isaiah just, you know, he's, he's exaggerating. He's making it sound worse than it is. You could imagine the task that he had in front of him. He is calling them to trust in God, not in themselves, not in an ally, which that's later in the book where they pursue an an, an ally. Um, He's calling upon them to turn uh, to to the God of heaven. So in his effort to get their attention, uh, part of what he does, I mean, it's a big, big uh, book, and so he does a lot of things, but part of what he does is he shares uh, the two outcomes for the world. And this section right here in, in chapter 34 you see one of the outcomes of the world, and it is really, really heavy. Chapter 34, if we read that publicly, we would be getting a lot of moans and groans. They they are hard verses to hear. They are hard verses to read because it appears that God drops the bomb on the severe reality of the future for those who reject him and those who reject his good way. Chapter 34, verse 2. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their heart, all their host. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Jump down to verse 6. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats and the fat of the kidney of rams. For the Lord has sacrificed in Basra a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Those are verses that we typically don't want to think about, that we typically don't want to read, that we want to kind of stiff arm those things <clears throat> or I- ignore them. And yet Isaiah is putting them right in front of the nation of Israel and saying, would you, would you be willing to consider this? This is one of the outcomes of the world. And then in chapter 35, you know, I talked about these big three movements of the book of, of Isaiah, but the, the breakdown is not quite so clean. Uh, One one Bible scholar named Tim Mackey, he says in Isaiah, judgment is never the final word. And so in chapter 34, here's one outcome of the world. There's going to be people. This this is going to be what happens. But then in chapter 35, you see Isaiah offer a different future. The outcome of those who come to God. And this is chapter 35. So let's let's take a look. This chapter is is so gloriously good. Verses 1 and 2. Uh, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. It's it's this this declaration that things are going to be good, that there's a, a, a right response of gladness and rejoicing. That that creation is blossoming. It's it's full. He indicates that the the desolate places, the wilderness, the dry land, the desert, that they are going to blossom like they've never blossomed before. And they are going to sing, like literally sing and rejoice. Creation is going to see the glory of the Lord. It's going to flourish. It's going to praise its creator. The, The earth is going to be restored. It's going to be remade. It's going to be renewed. The point is that creation is going to flourish. Then you jump down to verse 5, and you see what the impact of this future condition reveals. It's something's going to happen to people. And so in, chapter, in verses 5 through 10, you, you find out that the deaf and the blind and the lame and the mute and the thirsty and the uncomfortable, all the losses and all the pain, they're all going to be made right. And as Isaiah declares this second outcome, this second future, he basically says creation's going to flourish and people are going to flourish. Human beings are going to flourish. Think about our world right now. I mean, on the one hand, it's incredible. We, we, have, we have so many perks and so many comforts and our medical care and our, our education opportunities and just our transportation, like so many incredible things. And then you can also find some incredibly broken places, places like Afghanistan, places like Sudan, places like North Korea, places like Oxford, Michigan. A lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And I know that we can ride in our, in our cars or lay down on our mattresses in our heated homes. And those things feel so, so far away. And yet that's part of the experience of the world, is that people are suffering. And what Isaiah is saying here to the people of Israel is that there is a future coming where all things are made right. And then Isaiah has more to say. He says there's going to be a safe, clear, free highway. Available to those who have put their trust in the Lord. You look at verse 9, and it says, No, no lion shall be there, nor shall it be any ravenous beasts come up on it. They shall, they're, they're not going to be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. So there's just this, this beautiful picture. No evil, no vicious beasts, no enemies, no gunmen. Just that which God has redeemed. And they will walk and they will sing and they will rejoice all the way to Mount Zion. Verse 10 says they're going to be singing everlasting joy, gladness, and then sorrow and sighing will flee. No tears, no sorrow. Isaiah is saying all things are going to be made new. So phenomenal. Amazing. You know, man, I, I want that. You know, in, sp- in spite of some recent challenges that, that I've navigated, but, you know, my life is pretty good. I mean, actually, I would say my life is really, really good. I have a a million things to be thankful for. And yet I still long for what Isaiah is talking about. I still long for this world that he is painting, for this day to come, a future in a perfect, renewed creation, perfect, redeemed people with the truth, beauty and goodness of God saturating all of it. And I don't want you to miss the cause of all of this. How could this ever happen? You know, it would be easy for you, just like an an Israelite, to look around and be like, man, I don't know. That's a really big mountain. Like, that's a really big mountain to climb. That's a pretty big claim to say that all of this stuff can be cleaned up. Do you know how bad it is? Do you know how bad my situation is? Do you know what I've done? Do you know what's happened to me? Have you seen these conditions? How can we be sure this can happen? Look, chapter 34 makes me uneasy. But we have to remember that it is the description of life apart from God. I, Isaiah is desperate to tell you that a different outcome is being offered to you. Do, do you know what life apart from God is like? No. No, no, no you don't. Actually, none of us do. We, we have no idea what life apart from God would be like. Because the Bible tells us that there's something going on in this world called common grace. And that is that God is at work in the world to actually pour out blessings upon everything that's alive. Everything that's alive gets to feel the sun on its face. Everything gets to feel the rain. Everybody gets to experience the reality of of a relationship. There's this, this sense where God is pouring his grace out in a common way all over creation, all over the earth. And while it's infected with sin, and it's not the way it should be, there are these aspects of life here where God allows us to still experience goodness. Theologically, it's called common grace. You've never experienced a day. I have never experienced a day without common grace in the picture. You think the world's bad? We can't even imagine this world without common grace. Do you know what it would be like to be separated from the God of heaven? To be apart from God? We actually have no idea. You know, a a way to think about this this first future in Isaiah 34, this reality of of the consequences of, of rejecting God's good way. Think about this. If a branch is cut off from a tree, it shrivels and it dies. The tree doesn't make the limb die. Separation is what makes the limb die. And the message of the Bible is that sin has come in and sin has brought death. And the definition of death is separation. And so creation is no longer connected to God in the way it was originally designed to be. All of creation, including me and you, in our personal relationship with God, there has been separation that has come and separation has consequences and those consequences, we can't even fully describe them. And what Isaiah says, the rest of the Bible says this too, is that on the last day, that separation for those who reject God, that separation will be made final. It's going to be complete. And it's tragic. But in chapter 35, Isaiah is saying that those who have come to God, the Bible uses this word, this word picture of being grafted back in. So think of a a limb that's gotten cut off of a tree and then it gets grafted back into the tree. It gets reconnected. It gets reunited. Isaiah 35 is saying for those who are reunited, they're going to flourish because they are reconnected with God. Things are going to become the way they're supposed to be instead of infected and scarred by sin. What Isaiah is telling us is that the coming kingdom will be incredible Because creation will actually be reconnected to its creator. That's what's going to happen. The the union with God is going to be restored. And it's going to be what it should have been all along. That's what's coming. Why does it matter? I mean, you could say that is so great. That's such a great future. But it's future. It's It's not now. You know, maybe you're saying, I'm really glad that the end of the story is that good. But what about today? Like, I thought we were talking about joy today. I'm struggling right now. I need joy right now. How does the news of a future that may not come for many years or even until after I die, why why does that future, how does that matter? How is that going to bring joy? Well, if you're asking that question, look, you are not alone if you're asking that. Uh, that question, in my experience, is growing louder and louder in, in, our, in our current cultural moment. More, more and more questions about why does that even matter? Is that even true? Is there even life after this life? If, is there life after death? That's a question that's growing louder and louder. And, and you, you, you have a point. You know, Chapter 35 was not experienced by any of the original readers, any of the original audience around 600 B.C., And it's not been experienced by any Christian yet. Here we are 2,600 years after Isaiah said these words. And we're still waiting. So it's legitimate. If you say, what about joy now? It's legitimate. If you're saying, does this really matter? Well, I want you to look at verses 3 and 4. What Isaiah says is here after he's talking about this, this incredible future, this, this restoration that's going to happen. In verse three, he says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And so Isaiah understands if there's skepticism. He understands if you look at it and you have some level of doubt. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at each other and say, be strong and don't fear. Because this is a promise that you can sink your teeth into. Isaiah's perspective is that the good news of chapter 35 really does change everything. Is he right? Is he right for Israel? Is he right for us? Well, if this news is true, then yeah, he's right. And the entire message of the Bible is telling us that this news is true. Look at the promises of verses one and two, the promises of verses five through seven. They've actually already been shown to not be make-believe. Six hundred years after Isaiah said this stuff, a little baby showed up. And that little baby's name was Jesus, and as he walked this earth, he healed the blind. and he healed the deaf and he healed the lame, and he showed that he had authority over water and over creation, and he had the ability to, to, to make things happen and things flourish where flourishing was not happening before. But he did something even more. He addressed the fact that you and I need fix too. You know, in verses 9 and 10, he talks about the redeemed and the ransomed. Well, that means that you had to be, the, 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 the prefix RE, so, something happened to you. You got redeemed. You got renewed. You, you got remade. You got ransomed. What? Who, who did that? How in the world could that happen? You see, God is going to make all things new, including people. J- just a second ago, I read uh, Isaiah 34, 6. And it's, uh, you know, hard words to hear. The Lord has a sword. It's covered in blood. The Lord has a sacrifice uh, in in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And you're like, whoa, this, this this sounds really bad. If you have your Bible open, you want to hop over a few more chapters in Isaiah, over to Isaiah 63. Isaiah revisits this very reality. In Isaiah 63, verse 1, this is what he says. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Basra. He who is splendid in apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Who is it? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. You see, Isaiah is is telling us something that's crazy. Who is this coming out of Edom, coming out of Basra? It's the Lord. You see, this, this judgment stuff can be so heavy, but don't miss that. The one who levies the judgment is the one who is mighty to save. The same one who judges is the same one who is ready to save. If you keep reading in Isaiah 63 and you get down to verse 3, it says, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples, no one was with me. You you get what he's saying? He's saying when it came time for justice, there was no one else. No no one else could stand in the place of actually meeting out justice. Justice. Christ alone could do that. You know what what Isaiah is saying is there's, there's no good people. Everybody deserves judgment. Nobody got to help Jesus go do justice. None of us are qualified for that. In other words, everybody is on the hook. And here comes Christ. And Christ comes as the one who judges, yes. But he also is this very same one who's ready to save who is ready to rescue, who welcomes you and invites you to come. Jesus is the one who's able to redeem. He's the one who's able to ransom. And that makes all the difference. Jesus is rescuing. He's offering that rescue to you. He has provided everything that you need. You just have to come. You just have to look at him and say, I know I can't stand under your justice. I know that my resume is nowhere near good enough. I know that I can't help you. I need you to help me. And you know what he does? He rescues you. He redeems you. He ransoms you. These promises of a perfect future, they are not fairy tales. They are the truest true. You know, the world had to wait about 600 years after Isaiah penned these words for Jesus to come the first time. We've waited another 2,000 years for Jesus to come for the last time. So we wait, and we wait with longing hearts. A couple weeks ago, we were in Romans chapter 8, and we read that all of creation groans, longing for the day when all things are made new. We wait with the same declaration that John said in the final words of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. We're waiting. We are longing well, let me close with this. Look, at, look again at Isaiah 35, verse 4. Isaiah says that the, the Lord says to those who have an anxious heart. You know, the word for anxious means torn up or coming apart. It, this is not referring to a genuine concern. Uh, you, you may have a, a loved one that's uh, going through a health thing and you're, you're, you're concerned for them. That, that's, not, that's not what... Uh, that's not what the word anxious is talking about. Uh, our two daughters are downstate and they have to drive north and there's a winter storm here. And they, they, you know, they've been driving for a couple years, but they don't have a ton of experience on highways. And it's like, you know, we got some genuine concern for them driving home on the highways uh, this evening. Th- this is talking about anxiety. It's talking about being torn up or coming apart. What, what, what the Bible often is referring to with anxiety is it's looking at your situation And thinking that there is no way out. That that the future is all on your shoulders. And it's really, really dark. And you know, one of the killers of joy is the idea that the future rests on your shoulders. But what if you knew that the future was secure? What if you knew that the future was secure for sure? Do, Do you see that this is the message of the Bible? That there's a million questions In between now and the end of the story, there's a million questions about how we relate to God, about the character of God. There are are a million questions, but the Bible is trying to offer to us this this one reality, this this one sense of, of confidence where we can be reunited to God through the work of Christ so that we actually can have confidence of where this story is going with a million questions in between now and then. See, this is the message of the Bible, the end of the story. Where is this going? What is God doing in the world? Is everything spinning out of control? And the message of the Bible is, it feels like that, but it's not. You're often not going to understand it, but it's actually not spinning out of control. Many of you have heard of J.R.R. Tolkien um, the author of uh, many things, but the, the Lord of the Rings is his most popular work. And some of the most famous lines from those uh, three volumes occur near the end of the third volume, the third and final volume. And the uh, interaction will be on the screen behind us. Gandalf is the, is the, is the, the good wizard. And uh, one of the uh, little guys says to him, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then... I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? You see, they've stared at the face of evil. They've gone into the absolute depths of the abyss. And they've come out, and there's been victory. And now they look at Gandalf, their leader, and they say to him, I thought you were dead, but I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? And Gandalf's answer is, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. And there's this, the storyline of the Lord of the Rings is that they have to, they have to face evil. They have, to, they have to face the wickedness. And they come out on the other end, and this is, this is the response. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to this place? Something's radically different. Something has altered. Something is different. And then the sound of laughter. And Sam looks at it and says, wait, I haven't, I haven't heard that. Do you know how long it's been since I've heard somebody laugh? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Well, the answer is yes, and the joy will flow. Boy, we get anxious, we start to come apart, and we lose our joy when we forget that Jesus what Jesus has won for us. You know, if you've been around here long enough, you know that my favorite way to talk about joy is buoyancy. I think it's the best description of biblical joy, buoyancy, because you know we live in a place where there's lots of lakes and lots of water, and you know what a buoy is. And and when a wave hits a buoy, what happens to the buoy? It goes underwater for a minute. But it also pops back up. And and biblical joy has this fundamental sense of buoyancy. But verse 4 is the gospel. Verse 4 of Isaiah 35 is shouting to us the good news of the gospel. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. There is going to be judgment, but he's the one who's ready to save you. He's the one who's ready to rescue you through his son, Christ. The gospel says that your future is secured, not because of you, but because of Christ. So we wait. And we can wait with deep joy. Not because life is problem free. Now, there's plenty of problems, and we feel them every day. But because we know what's coming, we do not have to carry the weight of the future by ourselves. There's a a guy from the the third century named Cyprian. He lived in North Africa. And this is what he wrote as he faced death. It's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it, a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They have overcome the world. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. Now, I think it's important that we admit that we often haven't lived that out. That might not be your neighbor's view of you, that might not be your coworker's view of you, but it is what the scriptures are inviting you into. It is the kind of way of navigating the world to where, with all of the badness, he says it's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But these people have overcome the world. Yet, those are Jesus' words. That doesn't mean that you don't have trouble in this life. Jesus said you will have trouble in this life. But he invites us into a story where we know what's coming. Life can certainly be complex and confusing. But we should recognize, and we we should recognize that, but God does offer joy. Let's read verse 10, and then we'll close. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray. God, we recognize that we are in a world that offers us incredible levels of of joy and comfort. We also recognize that we're in a world that throws us a lot of curveballs and pain and sorrow. And God, as we look at, 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 at this life, and sometimes it feels like it is spinning out of control, I thank you for the invitation that you give us to actually believe your story, to actually trust what you're inviting us into, that the trajectory of this world is something that is not out of your control, that the world is actually not spinning out of control, but this story is headed somewhere, and the story is headed to a place where you make all things new, where you make this world as it should be, where you restore, where you make new, where you redeem. God, we thank you for this good news, and We thank you for the invitation to just run to it, to just hold on to it, to cling to it. God, we thank you that you're the one, that you're the one who provided the rescue. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.